that what you call a survivor? A few cells are still alive. It's more than I need. You at least identified it? We tried, but the computer went off the chart. You see, normal human beings have 40 DNA memo groups, which is more than enough for any species to perpetuate itself. This has 200,000 memo groups. Hello and welcome. Welcome and hello. This is Wait, You Haven't Seen? It's a show where we talk about movies, and we specifically talk about a movie at least one of us has never seen before. I'm your host, Travis, a.k.a. TV's Travis. This is episode number 107, and our movie this week was the 1997 Luc Besson film, The Fifth Element. And joining me to talk about it, because she had never seen it before, somehow, is Kit London. Kit, how are you doing? I'm fabulous. How are you? I am quite good. So, all right, first thing i got to ask. How is it you hadn't seen this before? Because uh, watching this movie and knowing it the way that I do and knowing you as well as I do, I feel like this is something you would have really liked. So I'm curious how it was you never saw it. Um, I think it was just one of those things I never sat down to watch. And I do remember um, my dad loves this movie. It was always on TV. Mm-hmm. And I never wanted to sit down and watch it with commercials. On okay. like TNT or USA or whatever was so I remember seeing bits and pieces of it, but I never actually sat down to what get get a DVD and like actually watch it. That's fair, and that's sort of similar to how I was with the Shawshank Redemption and why I didn't see it for so long. Um, that's a that's a very like. I mean, any reason not to see a movie is a valid reason, right? But that's that's a particularly valid reason where you don't you want to if you're going to watch the movie, you're going to watch the movie, not watch the version that's running on TV as the first time seeing it. So I get yeah, that. exactly. No, I totally get that. Um, well, so uh, we'll get to kind of your thoughts on the well. Let's let's just get right to your thoughts on the movie overall. What did you think of it as a movie? As a movie, it was a lot of fun. I loved it. I had a good time. I did have to park my brain mm-hmm. oh know, absolutely i just i just watched it to watch it didn't think too much into it or like okay what that doesn't make sense i just parked my brain and just let myself be entertained and yeah so the the cool thing about this movie is it's very much sci-fi fantasy um to to a major degree and what i like about it is it was especially at the time that it came out it was a sci-fi film that had a look that was very different from most sci-fi that you saw. You know, a lot of science fiction, especially um, from, you know, say, Star Wars on, you either had uh, a very clean antiseptic look of something or it was dirty and grimy. But you never got this, like, bright, colorful thing, right? Uh, ships were always, like enclosed and small and they had long they had short or they had small like walkways between everything and what this movie did was it was like nope we're gonna go in the completely opposite direction Luke Besson who wrote the story and co-wrote the script and directed it was basically like we're we're gonna make this look as colorful as as all hell and I want it to look insane and the costumes are just nuts throughout the entire thing they're they're there's so much fun though, and I think that's the what makes this work because the story is very simple, um, and almost I mean overly tropey, but it works Definitely, because yeah. the movie's just having fun. 
And so. I did. I had a lot of fun. You know, I just, that's why I was like, okay, just put my headphones in. And <laughs> it was just me and the cats and a bowl of popcorn. And I just went along for the ride. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Now, it, this has a really fantastic cast. Bruce Willis is Corbin Dallas. And what I like about this is this is Bruce Willis actually caring. Like he's showing up to to enjoy working instead of just getting a paycheck. Because Bruce Willis is one of, like, I don't fault actors for just doing a movie to get paid. In fact, I have something about that here shortly. Because it's a profession. You need to get paid. However, some actors can do that in a way and not make it seem like they would just rather be anywhere else. Bruce Willis, as much as I enjoy him in so many movies... Boy, can you tell when he doesn't care about the movie that he's working on? I mean... Oh, no. He he was definitely having fun, and it felt like it was diehard Bruce Willis. Yes. 2.0. Yeah, it was not, uh, oh, I don't know, Cop Out, the Kevin Smith movie that he did, or some of the stuff he's done recently where you can tell he just he would rather be anywhere else than working on this movie, but he's getting paid, so he's going to show up. Um, now, conversely, Gary Oldman who Nisbet in the chat just mentioned is fantastic in this movie, and you can tell um, really dives into everything he does, has gone on record as saying that uh, he doesn't really like this movie, and in he basically did it because Luc Besson helped co-produce um, and finance something that he had worked on. So, you know, you get the other side of it, where it's like a Gary Oldman, and that's just a testament to how good Gary Oldman is as an actor where you can see him going... I mean, he's ridiculously over the top as Zorg in this. Um, but, you know, I would not have guessed that this was a I'm going to do it for the paycheck type thing for him based on how over the top and how silly that character was. So, um, you also have... Uh, so, I mean, the cast going right down the list. Ian Holm as Vito Cornelius. You know, never, never get tired of seeing Bilbo in something, right? He's just great. Um, whether yeah, it's... and I know him as the um, oh sorry, I didn't know him as the professor from uh, Day After Tomorrow. Oh yeah, yeah, that's right. He's in that. Um, I mean, he was you know um, Ash and Alien, uh, the first Alien movie. Um, Bilbo and the, the Lord of the Rings trilogy is like you know older Bilbo. Um, mm-hmm. Ian Holm is great. I remember him from this. I remember him from oh so many movies. Uh, my dad was a big fan of the movie Brazil when I was growing up, and he's in that. So I remember him from there. But this was one of those that I really remembered because just because of the timing of when it came out and when I saw it versus some of the other roles that I saw him in. So, yeah, I, and, and he's a lot of fun in this. Again, he gets to play uh, sort of, he's he's slightly bumbling, but he really he really is only bumbling in that he's just like he's so nervous because his entire life has been leading to this moment. And now it's here and he is not quite sure what to do and yeah i loved it when he uh he saw the tattoo and he fainted yep that was <laughs> i was dying he sees the tattoo and faints they get to the temple at the end and he's like well theoretically i know how this is all supposed to work oh and yeah by, that was great <laughs> and by theoretically it's just like um i read it in a book that the stones and the fifth element and it just does the thing like that's all he's been taught it's just been hammered into him for his entire life so yeah, it, it's just passed down 300 years, you know, village uh-huh. story. <laughs> you know, he's, it's like, oh, now I actually have to do this. What? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, wait, there's mechanics to this. Oh, no. Oh, no. Um, Mila Jovovich is Lilu. 
So she is, uh, she's the emotional center of the movie. She's kind of, I mean, her and Bruce Willis are the, the stars. Um, they're the main characters in this. This was not, I mean, this was fairly early in her career, but one of the, there was a few things about this that I thought was interesting. One was her hair. So she has bright orange hair in the movie and they started off dyeing her hair, but apparently, uh, the dyes they were using, and it's probably from the time um, and how often they had to dye her hair. It was not taking it well, so they eventually just had to make a wig that was the orange hair to match. So it's interesting if you watch it again, try to try to find the scenes that she has actual orange hair versus the, the wig. Mm, I, w- I just wanted to run a brush through it. <laughs> <laughs> it was a little, uh, little nappy, wasn't it? Yeah, it was like a little dreadlocky, like... Okay, can I? I love the color and I like how she looked. You know, it was it was interesting because everything else, everybody else had dark hair except for her. It was orange, but I just wanted to run a brush through it. <laughs> well, I mean, five thousand year nap. You know, your hair is going to get like that. You can't really True. help it. And on top of that, she had to be reconstructed. So, I mean, but yeah, just give her a comb. They gave her, you know, they they got her into wardrobe. They couldn't. They they got her a makeup box. They couldn't give her a comb though. Um, uh, but she's a, she's a ton of fun in this. So the, the divine language stuff that she was speaking early on was actually something that her and Luke Besson created, um, for her character. So it it wasn't a full language. It wasn't like a, um, Oh, game of Thrones and Dothraki or even Klingon in, in Star Trek universe and how that's become like a fully fleshed out language. It's, it's similar, but they had something like 400 words. I think is what they they figured out for that, and according to rumors that and trivia and whatnot, um, by the end of filming, the two uh, Luke Besson and Mila Jovovich could carry on entire conversations in that language. So, um, and I love the the trivia that the scene where she crashes into the cab, and then she starts talking to Bruce Willis right away. That um, he he didn't know what she was going to say. Like he didn't know what the line was coming up. So she just starts spouting this random, uh, what feel sounds like complete gibberish to him. So apparently his, uh, his reactions are pretty genuine, which is great. Mm, nice. <laughs> it's always fun to do stuff like that. Uh, yes, Artemis, that is, um, Mila Jovovich from resident evil. Uh, this was, this was a few years earlier in 97. I think first resident evil was 2001, something like that. Um, but yeah, she had she had done uh, what was it? Um, Dazed and Confused, and a couple of other movies, Return to the Blue Lagoon, and things like that before this. But this was kind of a big breakout for her. So, um, she was. Um, I was looking at the IMDb, and she was in an episode of Married with Children as a foreign exchange student. And I was looking at the pictures, like, oh my god, I remember that. <laughs> Well, what's interesting is apparently learning that divine language and her and Luke Besson developing that, she had a bit of an advantage because she could speak four languages. So um, she grew up, I think, if I remember correctly, she grew up in Europe, but they moved quite a bit or something. So she ended up learning a lot of languages when she was young. Um, So, yeah, I mean, she had a leg up on on learning all these, you know, learning a language and She's great in the movie. Uh, she brings the right amount of physicality with the movements that she has to do and kind of like all the fighting, 
but at the same time, because of I think her age makes her feel more vulnerable because she's you know she's supposed to be a vulnerable weapon in a way, and Mila Jovovich was just over I think she was around twenty nine thirty years old when they made this. No, mm. twenty. Sorry, she was born in nineteen seventy five. So she would have been about 21, 22 when they were making this. So I think being that young but able to show that much emotion, I think, really helped that character. Um, and when you're Definitely playing off of Bruce Willis, who isn't known for emoting a ton, uh, it, it helps too. <laughs> and you were going to say? Yeah, definitely. I, I, I felt like when she woke up, I couldn't understand her, but I totally understood she was scared and freaking out Mm -hmm. i didn't need to know what she was saying it was all over her face and her body language how she was reacting i guess at least my first question was did them taking pictures of her wake her up i think that helped to wake her up yeah i think the flash of that might have done it you know it's really hard to say. I mean, that whole scene, you have to kind of, most of the, the movie, you have to sort of park your brain, right? So I think, yeah. but I think yeah. that's the the implication that the, the flash of that camera is what finally like snapped her awake. Um, okay. Because she yeah. didn't seem to be awake until, and then it's like, all of a sudden she just starts waking up and then she starts freaking out and goes through all that. And I was kind of like, well, what was the catalyst for that? Like, was it the <laughs> pictures or... Yeah, I, I'm sure that was a big part of it. And, you know, the thing is, like, you're right. She, she So much of this movie, her her screen time in this movie, at least to start, she has to be able to emote and get across all these feelings and all this, all this information without speaking a language that most people can understand. So there's a lot of that to it. And, and she does this great, she's got this great, like, childlike innocence where, you know, the whole chicken and, and her going through her screen and she's just so, like, super happy until she starts getting to some of the tougher stuff. And it's almost like she had this this weird shelf life of... Because if you remember in the beginning of the movie, the the shadow planet thing, they talk about it's got 48 hours to adapt. Mm-hmm. And it feels like she had kind of a similar thing. Like she had 48 hours to get, get sorted and apparently find love. And then she could do what she was supposed to do. So I know... It's it's an interesting character. I have some issues with the whole like love angle of it at the end, but that's that's a whole different thing. Like a lot of that, I can also park my brain because it's a movie, right? So you know, in a movie, it's possible to fall in love in whatever the like hour and a half that the two of them spent together. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. I'm like, okay, you love her. You've known her all of five minutes. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she fell into your cab. Um, you stuck her in a shower to hide her, and you found her in an air vent, and you guys are in love. Cool. All right, makes sense. Makes sense to me. So yeah. Yeah, and I, I didn't get what finally made him decide to help her. Like she was reading and understand. Like she was saying, "Please help." You know, the tears running down. But he's telling her, "I only have one license point," which. Do you need license points to drive? I didn't understand all of that, but well, again, all of a sudden he just decides to say, oh, okay, I'm helping you. Yeah, I mean, so the license point thing, you know, we're 300 and something years in the future, so 
who knows what this, what all that's like, but, um, what it comes down to is so, so Corbin Dallas, Bruce Willis's character is a former special ops, uh, army guy, been retired for six months and driving a cab. So what we're, I think meant to believe is that he, he is trying to kind of fly the straight and narrow. And that's why he doesn't want to, um, when the police finally show up, like he's willing to help her initially. And then the cops show up and he's like, Oh, you know what? I, I gotta, I, I can't like, I, I need this job. You know, he's trying to, he's lost his wife. Mm-hmm. He's trying to keep his life together. So then she, he can tell how scared she is and doesn't want to get, uh, taken by the cops. And it's that hero mentality of like, well, I'm going to rescue her thing. I think that finally flips for him. So I don't know if there's any like one moment so much as it's him like fighting it, fighting it and finally saying, nope, you know what? I'm going to help her because she's a beautiful woman basically is what it was. Um, so who knows? Oh yeah. Career change of uh, military to cab driver. Well, there's some of a reason for that. I'll get into uh, in a little bit, but, um, but yeah, so that's, that's Mila and Bruce and, and their relationship for as quick as it is on screen, it also uh, kind of works in a weird way. And, and and it's hard for me to fully understand why, because obviously there is an age difference in the characters, but also in the actors. Uh, Bruce Willis was in his 40s when they made this. But there's something about the chemistry of them and just the way that the, the story is being told, where, again, if you can suspend your disbelief and park your brain, it works. Um, I, I really don't understand why <laughs> it shouldn't, but, um, but it does for me. I don't know. I don't know. It, did it for you, did something like that work for you or did it feel way too forced? No, no, it, it worked. Um, they were very cute together. They had chemistry, like, and she obviously realized, okay, I can trust you. And I felt more like since he woke up and had that dream, it was sort of his destiny kind of. I think they're sort of playing that a little bit, yeah. Um, and he was talking about, oh, I want the perfect woman, and and when they made her, you know, reconstructed her, oh, she's perfect. Like they keep saying that over and over, so it it kind of felt like, yeah, yeah that was it, that was really happening. that was really being hammered home. Like they weren't subtle about that at all. Um, nope, nope, <laughs> subtle's a train wreck. This none of, nothing in this movie is subtle. Let's put it that way. Uh, I mean, you've got your your costumes, your colors, your music, uh, your effects, all of that. Nothing is subtle. Um, and speaking of not subtle, Chris Tucker as Ruby Rod is about as <laughs> oh unsubtle as a character can get. And I know a lot of people that I've talked to over the years that are like, oh, The Fifth Element, the problem I have with that movie is Chris Tucker as Ruby Rod annoys the hell out of me. And I'm like, yeah, I know. That's that The whole point of that character was to annoy you. Um was he annoying to you? Not not in a I can't stand it kind of way, but I I mean, I understood that's what the character is because he, he's annoying Bruce Willis and is in the way he's trying to be under the radar and, you know, he's being thrust into the spotlight. Yeah. This is opposite of what he wanted, so. Mm-hmm. And the thing with Chris Tucker is Chris Tucker is kind of an acquired taste. Like, you either like Chris Tucker or you can't stand him, whether it's... Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I, he did a movie with Charlie Sheen. I can't think of now the title of something money. Um, but you know, Friday, uh, rush hour, like all of those. If you, if you don't like Chris Tucker, 
you won't like Ruby Rod. If you're okay with Chris Tucker, then you understand exactly what he was doing in this movie. And that was, he didn't go to 11. He cranked it to like 15 and just went completely off the wall. And it works so well opposite uh, Bruce Willis that uh, Money Talks, that's the one. Um, it works so well opposite Bruce Willis that, uh, that I really enjoyed it. Um, and I don't, I don't have a problem with Chris Tucker for the most part. Like I don't mind the super manic, uh, stuff that he does and the screaming and all that. Plus again, costuming, his costumes were insanely great. I I was thinking that I was like, damn girl, you got a nice figure. Look at you rocking those outfits. Oh yeah. Holy shit. And you can tell too, they gave him a little bit of license to kind of, um, ad-lib some of his stuff because uh, he starts singing Lionel Richie at one point and um, just all, all that. And, and it's great. But but I like, too, like his character is there to annoy you, but by the end of the movie, he is still annoying you, but now he's just like, I, 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 I can't deal with this anymore. Like it's just, It becomes too much for him. And it's fun. It's a fun little ride that he gets to go on. And yeah, sure, he screams a lot and he yells and, and all this. And he says, my man. Uh, I, like a thousand times, he uses that like a comma. Mm-hmm. But uh, I I enjoy it. Uh, you know, I have seen far worse versions of Ruby Rod from far less charismatic actors, and that's the big part, right? Chris Tucker's got a charisma about him that you just can't teach. So, you know. I, I like Chris Tucker, uh, and Ruby Rod was uh, just insane, completely insane. But I also quote Ruby Rod a lot. I, I call things green and super green, and I have no idea what that means, but I still use it. I was just going to ask you, thank you. I'm like, <laughs> okay, I, I think I understand, but I don't know. <laughs> like it's, it's honestly just made-up slang for like good. Like That's his version of good. It's just like him doing the buzz and, and flipping his hand at people to say go away. Like, that's just a Ruby Rod thing. So, oh, that was a total diva thing. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, Puzz, get out of my spot. Get out of my radar. <laughs> yep. Uh, Luke Perry's in the movie as Billy. Um, and the funny thing about that is Luke Perry gets, like, sixth billing if you watch the opening credits. And he's in the movie for, like, five minutes. Mm-hmm. He's barely in it. But this, you know, 1997, Luke Perry was a big, uh, a pretty big name to get. Uh, in terms of oh like, yeah, I wrote fame, that's so. my first note, Luke Perry. Oh my god, that's my <laughs> first note. <laughs> so and you know it's another one of those instances where it's it's sort of stunt casting, right? To put somebody like a Luke Perry in 1997 as this character in the beginning of the movie, we're never going to see him again. He he bears no uh, no he has no bearing on the plot whatsoever. He's great. He, he is, like his few moments on screen are are wonderful in my opinion. Um, mm-hmm. I love him as an artist and he's just like going through the motions and helping out this professor probably for some college credit, right? And uh, he ends up in Egypt for no reason. So I I liked that. I liked seeing him in there. Um, It's one of those where like the the supporting cast in this is great with Luke Perry. Brian James is the general, General Monroe. Um, I always remember him from uh, Blade Runner. But he, he's actually really funny in this, um, including getting stuck in the refrigerator and frozen. And for the, fo- for the longest time, I thought that he died in that scene. 
Like I thought he was dead, and then he pops up later in the movie. I thought he was too. <laughs> they kind of make it feel like that, don't they? Because you never see anyone else, but you see him again in a later scene. So, um, and he had Tommy Tommy Tiny Lister Jr. as the president, which is just great. Like this huge hulking dude is the president of the Federated Planets or whatever. And are you familiar with him, with Tommy Lister? No, I was um, going through the IMDb to see if I did know him from anything, and I nothing pops up, but I feel like I've seen him in a thousand things. I mean, he's... But I he, can't pinpoint anything. Yeah, he was Debo in Friday. He pops up in a lot of uh, movies playing either like a criminal or a thug. He was in The Dark Knight. Um, if you remember the scene in The Dark Knight with the boat... He's the one that grabs the detonator and chucks it out the window. And oh, okay, okay. Yeah, he's got a very unique look to him with his, he's got the, he had the one eye that was a little off, um, but he's he's a big, imposing, just hulking figure in real life. Um, so he always played kind of these intimidating characters, which is why casting him as the President Lindbergh in this was great because he spends the whole time just talking. He doesn't, he doesn't mm-hmm. do... Uh, you know, anything physical. And yes, Zeus as well and Noel Holds Bard, um, which is a, a wrestling movie from the late 80s. And then he tried his hand at professional wrestling for a little while. Uh, but I, I like, I always liked uh, Tom Lister. So it was, it's, and, and this was a particular fun one for me because you can tell he, you can tell he really enjoys the fact that he's doing a role where he's got a lot of dialogue and he gets to, to be funny. So that was, that was always cool for me. Um, one other one I wanted to mention was, um, Tricky as the right arm of Zorg. And, uh, I just knew him from, I listened to some of his music uh, around this time. He was a electronic artist, especially big in the nineties. And I think he's still working today. Um, he was the, the guy that was Zorg's right hand man, the one that gets blown up Mm -hmm. by the phone booth. So this was, this was his first film. Uh, he's done a little bit of acting since then. Um, I liked him a lot. He was fun. Yeah, I, I thought he was pretty good. Like, he felt very natural. And a lot of times when you get musicians that come into acting early on, they'll feel very stilted for some reason. And he didn't. He just he felt very, very natural in his role. So Yeah, I know. He, he knew he was dying when he made that phone call at the airport. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, that's for sure. Um, so, yeah. The, okay, Luke Basson wrote and directed this. Now, he wrote the original story for this movie when he was in grade school, I think, or high school, something like that. And and uh, I want to say he was like somewhere between 16 and 18 when he wrote it. And he and this movie came out, he was 38. So he held on to it for a long time and really took a long time to make it. He is quite an interesting director for me personally, because I feel like his stuff can be very hit or miss. He's very much a park your brain at the door uh, when you watch his stuff. So if you're not familiar with him, uh, some of his other stuff that he has directed, let me give you a little rundown here. Prior to The Fifth Element, he had done Leon the Professional with Jean Reno uh, and Natalie Portman. He had done La Femme Nikita, um, the movie that then became a series later on. Um and a, uh, a documentary on Atlantis. But this was this was one of his first, uh, after Leon, kind of big movies. He went on to do uh, The Messenger, The Story of Joan, the, Joan of Arc, um, Lucy, 
Did you ever see that with uh, um, uh, Scarlett, Scarlett Johansson? Johansson? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and he did was... the transporter too. Yes, uh, he wrote the transporter. He didn't direct that. Oh, okay. Sorry. Um, he's written a, a lot of the stuff that he's written. Um, you've seen probably even more of things like Transporter, Lucy. Um, obviously, the F- La Femme Nikita. All of that is is based off of his thing. Um, he wrote uh, a movie. He wrote Taken, the original Taken. Um, oh, okay. And uh, he wrote a movie called uh, Unleashed, that is one of my favorite um, Jet Li films. And it, it's it's great. If you get a chance to find Unleashed and watch it, uh, I highly recommend it because it's not your typical Jet Li uh, type of movie. Um, I like him. I like Luke Besson as a writer and director because I think he has an interesting style. But you definitely... It's like watching a Stephen Summers movie, the guy that did uh, The Mummy and The Mummy Returns. You have to park your brain. Because they're going to oh, yeah. be all sorts of leaps in logic. There's going to be all sorts of stuff. He's just stylistic. He has a style that he likes, and he goes for it. Um, there was another one he wrote, if I can find it. Oh, Wasabi is another great one he wrote um, from 2001. So I, I personally, I like Bassan um, because he just goes in these weird directions. And the thing with this movie that worked so well was what I kind of touched on at the beginning where he he basically said, all right, I want to do a sci-fi movie, but I don't want gray and silver and, and drab and dark. I want everything to be bright and colorful and like this positive outlook on what the future could look like while it's still being uh, dingy or not dingy, but um, like dirty, right? So you got like New York is just built taller. Everything is higher now. Um, and you got all the flying cars and all of that. So he kind of gets all this uh, this really interesting look to everything, um, and the costuming it just goes takes that to the next level. Like I loved the look of everybody in this movie, from the simple stuff that Bruce Willis was wearing to like why did Gary Oldman have half his head shaved and some weird plastic thing over it? Yes, yes. <laughs> what is that about? <laughs> I don't know, but um, but it worked. Like the the um, the costuming for Lilu is weird kind of spandex pants and half a shirt. And then this rubber sort of monokini. I don't even know what you would call that suspenders thing that she was wearing. Yeah. They remind me of suspenders. I was like, okay, they wanted to keep the orange and some color for her. And that was the, that was another thing was color. There was a lot of color. Um, you know, the, the yellow cabs, there was a lot of those driving around in yellow buses and the, on the scenes where there, you saw all the flying cars and the, the stewardesses were wearing blue and very, very kind of shiny blue and nobody had boring looking costumes. Even the police uniforms were outlandish and crazy looking and the helmets they wore made no sense whatsoever. Um, I love that. I love every part of that. And I like the fact that the movie starts off with boring, slow-moving sci-fi credits, right? Like the first part of the movie is this ominous music and just basically black background with white text fading in and out. And then the movie we get is what we get, which is just here's everything and and all sorts of colors and we're just going to slap all this at you constantly. So I liked liked that. uh, I really loved the robots that showed up in the beginning too. Like I wasn't expecting them like, 
okay, here comes the aliens and you have like a preconceived notion of what these guys are going to look like when they come in the ship, you mm-hmm. know, and I was not <laughs> expecting them. They were. Well, especially were cool. when, yeah, you look at like how, I mean, realize how big that ship was because that pyramid that they were at was fairly large and the, they came out of this tiny little thing right at the bottom of that huge ship. And then mm-hmm. what comes out of it are these like chunky waddling, weird looking kind of duck creature face things. I don't even, I don't know how to describe them. You have to watch it. The Mondashi ones is what they're called. And mm-hmm. that was the, the other thing I really, really enjoyed about this movie was there was a good amount of CG work done, but the creature work was largely uh, prosthetics and animatronics. And for me, that's another testament to uh, the filmmaking because it makes it look better 20 years later. Uh, those types of effects, while they still look very 90s, will age, I feel, better than something that's fully CG uh, characters at that time because the technology just wasn't there yet. So, yeah. And the Mondashi ones were great. Like, they waddle, and I love their waddle. And the fact that as those walls start closing in, you immediately know that dude's not getting out of the, the temple in the beginning of the movie because he just doesn't move fast enough. Um even though I think the wall only closed on his hand. So mm-hmm. he's probably fine. He probably just, what would have been great though, has had they, when they went back to the temple and they opened the doors and there was just him standing there with one hand being like, Hey, it's been 300 years. Come on. <laughs> so like took you long enough or something, you know, like yeah, really, that would have been funny. Um, but yeah, the, the, those guys were great. I wish we would have seen and known more of them as a species. Um, cause we really only get the one scene with them and apparently they're, they, for whatever reason, they hold the key to fighting ultimate evil, but why we don't know. Um, but I guess too, it took each one of those costumes took three people to operate because they had somebody in it, it and then they had the people doing the animatronics and they had to have a TV screen cause they couldn't see out of them. Um, so they had like little TV screens built into them so they could waddle around. Uh, and unfortunately, and I was kind of sad to read this, they destroyed almost all of those costumes after the movie was wrapped up. There's only like two or three of them left. Yeah. There was one supposedly in a planet Hollywood. Uh, if those are still around, I think in Orlando and then someone else had one, but that was it. And that's kind of a bummer because those are really cool looking. I really like the design of them too. Yeah. I thought it was funny. They're these big hulking guys and they have this little miniature head. Yeah. Tiny little head. They got these like robotic sounding voices. Like, are they mechanical? Are they biological? We just don't know. We don't know enough about them. But, but they were cool. You had the the um, uh, da, 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 the bad guys, the shape shifting looking dudes were pretty cool looking. Um, and I liked again. There's the animatronic head, and so they would use CG to do the morph effect when they would change their face. But outside of that, I think those, again, I think they, they age better that way, even though the mouth movements don't really make a whole lot of sense for what they're saying. Like, they look awesome. Uh, I, my only complaint with them was it was hard to tell any of them apart because it was mm-hmm. just the same face, except for they did break the ear on the one guy. and that. So if you're really paying attention, you could tell, oh, okay, this is... This one is different from the rest, but they all sounded exactly the same and they looked exactly the same. So it was, 
that's the only thing I would have done is if they had more of a budget, they could have made them, you know, give some differences to them. But they were they were meant to be sort of very standard looking. Uh, yeah, he was the leader, right? The the broken ear guy. He was, yes. Uh, Agnot, I think, was his name. Um, and I like, too, that they're kind of played off as being sort of dumb, but they're not. Like, they're not completely stupid. They just are set in a certain way. And they do things in a very specific manner that doesn't coincide with what Zorg does at all. Um, which is great when Zorg, like, basically rips on them as they're leaving, calling them warriors and saying that they're dumb and then blows them all up. Because Zorg is just a terrible dude. Which is another thing, if I had a complaint in this, is that I want to know more about some of these characters because why is Zorg... How did Zorg learn about the boxes or the the stones? How did he learn about... um, What did they call him? Mr. Shadow? Um, Yeah, that was one of my questions was, why does he want the stone? Like, it doesn't... Okay, he's working with the shadow. I understand that. But that was my question as well. I was like, how did he know about this when no one else besides the priest knew? Yeah. So it's that's the type of thing. Like, I want to know more of that. But I also sort of understand they were just... They're like, oh, we're going to have a fun story with interesting visuals and we'll make the characters strange. But we're not going to... We're going to hand wave most of everything away. Normally, that would annoy me. But for some reason, in this movie, it works. So... (laughs) I don't know. Uh, maybe there's something to be said for bright colors and lots of shining lights to distract me. I, th- I think it's just because you care so much about Bruce Willis and um, Lilu that it's like, okay, well, he's just a generic bad guy, whatever. Yeah, that's true. Interesting thing, too. And I don't, maybe, maybe you noticed this, maybe you didn't. Bruce Willis, so Corbin Dallas and Zorg are the... Uh, antagonist and protagonist, or protagonist and antagonist in the movie. They don't share a single scene. They barely know of each other's existence. Like, Zorg knows that Corbin Dallas won the Gemini Croquette contest because he heard it on the radio. And Corbin Dallas knows the name Zorg because of getting fired from the company that he worked for. But that's it. They don't realize that Zorg has no idea that Corbin Dallas is, is trying to help the fifth element in Lilu because they never have a scene together, which is really an interesting thing to do with your protagonist and an antagonist in a movie is it's not the first time that I've seen where they don't share a scene, but to not know really about the other one either is very interesting because, because Cornelius knows about Zorg, but Cornelius doesn't tell Corbin about it. And Corbin gets brought in by the military who know about the the shadow planet, but I don't think they know about Zorg. So it's like, it's this weird confluence of everything. And I found that really interesting from a writing uh, perspective to go that route. I feel like they're connected through, everybody's connected through the priest. Through oh, yeah. Ian Holmes. He knows everything that's going on in all the players. Yeah, so, yeah, I never really thought about it that they didn't share a scene. They almost saw each other at the elevator at the end, and that's, that's, that's as, it. Yep, that's as close as they get. And I think there might be, like, a couple of frames of film where they're crossing paths or something. But, like, yeah, on the whole, they, they don't have a scene together. They don't know of each other. And that happens a lot because if you look at Zorg is – so Zorg is trying to get the stones. So he's sending his guy to go get the stones. 
the um uh I can't think of what are they called? What are the not uh I'll find it here. But um the the bad guys, the Oh, the shapeshifter dudes, uh, Mo- Mongols, or I can't remember what they called them. Mangalores. Oh, yeah. Mangalores. So you got, so you got Zorg is sending his guy to try and get those stones. The Mangalores want to stick one to Zorg. They don't care about the shadow planet. They don't care about anything. They just want honor uh, restored after getting treated the way they did by Zorg. So they're trying to get... um to where they, they go to get the stones and ahead of Zorg. And then you've got the military and the and everybody wants to, you know, obviously save people. And so does Cornelius, but Cornelius wants to do it because it's just what he's trained his entire life for. So everybody's trying to do the same thing, which is why you get that great scene with the the booking agent where every it seems like every person that came up to that window is saying they're Corbin Dallas. Four different people. And so that was that yep. was a lot of fun too. She she finally at the end of it is just like, you know what? No, I'm sorry, you're not Corbin. I'm I'm leaving. So But yeah, yeah I, I didn't um oh sorry. I, I just wanted to ask too, like I, I didn't see how he started choking on the cherry, but I, I liked that scene of what Zorg was explaining of why he's doing it and saying, Well, we're doing this for the same reasons, but just not the way you think mm-hmm. and and uh cornelius was asking him well oh where's your robot now to slap your back and yeah. save your life so yeah he basically just he tried to swallow the cherry in one gulp with the water and it got stuck mm. um yeah that's a fun scene for me because of the whole like old basically zorg's philosophy is destroy to create He's going to destroy things in order to create new jobs and create mm-hmm. new things. That's that's the philosophy that Zorg lives by. And so that scene gives us the reason of why he's working, I think, with the shadow planet, with the, the dark planet, whatever they call it, the ultimate evil. Um, because in his... I The way that I interpret it is in Zorg's mind... That is the ultimate in destruction that then there can be creation out of it. Now, it probably wouldn't go that way for him, but uh, that's what he thinks. I'm curious to know how he found out about any of it, but I think that's why he was working with him in the first place. So, you know, it's uh, it's just one of those things where there's a lot of scenes like that. And you're right. You have these questions of like, well, what's what's going on here and, and what's happening there? So you you mentioned that you had a few questions. Why don't go ahead and lay some on me, and I'll see if I can kind of answer based on what I know, and we can kind of talk them out a little bit. Because I'm curious. I'm curious to know what questions you had. Um, well, you kind of answered all of them. I did notice, though, um, for me that it has a lot of space balls breaking the fourth wall a little bit, and it has a lot of the reminds me of the airplane movie type of humor. <laughs> It's it's self-aware, right? The movie doesn't take itself too seriously, and I think that's why mm-hmm. it works. So Luc Besson has been known to write very serious stuff. I mentioned um, Leon the Professional, um, and he's done he, the transporter. has got a little bit of tongue-in-cheek humor, but for the most part, it's played very straight. Taken is not a funny movie. 
But what works in this was that he was able to have a self-awareness of like, look, this is cheese ball. This looks insane. This is very silly. It's supposed to be fun. And so, yeah, there's a lot of winks and like not straight up fourth wall breaks. It doesn't quite go to uh, Zucker Brothers type of airplane, like wink at the camera, but it gets as close as you're going to get in a movie. Mm-hmm. And I like that. I like that you have sort of the running gag of like Lilu has no sense of modesty like most people do. So when she comes out of the shower and she's soaking wet, she just pulls her shirt off to wring it out, right? That's just what she would do. There's She has no reason not to. Meanwhile, you've got Cornelius and Corbin Dallas are like immediately turning and looking away and just, you know, trying to have their own conversation and, and not pay attention to it. Like, oh, you want a cup of coffee? Yeah, that'd be yeah. great. Let me have some coffee. Yeah. And I found a movie mistake oh, right yeah? there at that scene. She takes her shirt off and rings it. He goes and gets a coffee and when Cornelius sees the tickets, she's like unrolling her shirt right mm-hmm. underneath her her boobs. Well, when it, it cuts back to Bruce Willis and cuts back again, she's doing it again. Oh yeah, <laughs> like so like they, they redid that like another take, and that's where she was. She was unrolling it. Uh, that's funny. so yeah. I have a note that that that's a movie mistake. <laughs> yep. Well, you know those happen. Uh, it's a pretty yeah. good one. They're fun to catch, though. <laughs> I also I, that scene for me is is especially funny because of Bru- the the reaction shot of Bruce Willis when he gets hit with his own uh, his own like award because he he just does he he pulls a really funny face when he gets hit and then when he then when they cut back to him and he looks at the award and he's just like and he throws it away like to to me that was always really funny so I, I very much enjoyed that scene. Uh, yeah, so you, definitely. You were going to say? Oh, my other, I, I did find another question was, why do the lab guys have green glowing eyes? So that's only in that one spot, and it's um, it's a black light. And I actually wrote a note myself about that, about how much I liked the, the just overall look for this. And like, my guess is, my best guess on that is sort of a shorthand of they're going into the lab, and that's kind of like a delousing chamber. Um, in a way, it's sort of an airlock was my feeling on that. But I think, honestly, all it was was just, hey, let's put a blacklight here because it'll look cool. And they probably just put yeah. reflective contacts in them because it, it looks creepy as hell, too, Um, to see, like, the glowing eyes and, you know, parts of their skin glowing and stuff like that. Or uh, the one dude that got that real thin goatee, General Monroe, and it's glowing because it's bleach white. So... Yeah. yeah, it 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 was interesting, but they were talking about the um, DNA, like he was given like the DNA count or whatever, and mm-hmm. the general there, he says, well, it must be some kind of freak, and as he says that, their eyes and stuff are glowing green, so oh, I yeah. didn't know there was more into that. No, they basically, when they, if you watch the scene again, they're walking down the hallway and they're talking about it. Right as they get to that point, they're coming up to the door. They pass into this little kind of mini airlock, and you can see mm-hmm. that everything in there is under black light. So yeah. it just happened to be that. I'm, I, I mean, it's just probably Luke Besson being like, "This would be a fun way to deliver that line." It's like t- calls him a freak and says, "Ooh, it'll be cool to meet him with him glowing green eyes." Right. So mm-hmm. it's totally just a stylistic choice, I'm sure. 
Oh. Yeah, it was cool. I, I I picked up on it, but <laughs> I just didn't know if there was something else be- that I was missing. I was waiting for them to say, "Oh yeah, we're radiated," or s- something had happened to them, or like I was waiting for something to pay off at the end of why their eyes were glowing green. And they have a lot nothing. of stuff. There was a lot of things like that. If you notice when they were getting the plane ready to take off and they went underneath to um, get the parasites off the landing gear, you got the two guys smoking uh, smoking what looks like a giant joint as they're changing out the nuclear uh, rod in the plane. And everything's labeled with you know radiation and all that, but they're just they're standing there like it's nothing. Um, so yeah, there's, there's quite a bit of that, but again, this movie, this movie is very much style over substance. It's a simple story. The characters are very simple. The motivations for those characters are very simple, but it's wrapped up in a lot of pretty looking stuff, a lot of very, uh, colorful and bright and shiny and a lot of movement. Um, so it's, it's, style over substance, but it works. There's enough substance there. There's enough for you to care about in the characters that you can kind of let go uh, a lot of, uh, there's a lot of, it's easier to suspend your disbelief with this than it is for, for some other things because it's not trying to take itself too seriously, I think too. So definitely I wrote trouble with tribbles. That was my (laughs) scene. (laughs) Those things were great. They looked like, um, I think they were supposed, or they just used like uh, an old '80s toy of some kind, because they look like just foam rubber little, little dealy wops that they would drop mm-hmm. out of there. But yeah, they were they were great. Um, I forgot to mention John Neville was the general at the beginning of the movie that was firing at the planet. Mm-hmm. Um, John Neville is amazing, and it's another piece of kind of semi stunt casting. You know, we're gonna put this guy in here who has acted in everything from this movie to like, I'm pretty sure he's done a lot of stage. He did a lot of stage work too, but yeah, he was, he was great. Um, and that opening scene with the planet is interesting because here's your overall antagonist in the movie. It's very much a, um, uh, an eye of Sauron type of deal, right? Where your ultimate evil, how do you like, how do you put that to form? So they just have it as this giant flaming planet. And that whole scene is great in that they're building that tension up and you've got all these people in the military and the military men are just like, shoot first, ask questions later. That's all it is. Meanwhile, you've got the priest being like, Hey, uh, it's probably not going to work, but nobody wants to listen to him because they don't feel like they have the time. And I, I really enjoyed that. I, the only thing I've never figured out is where the blood is coming from on their foreheads. So, yeah, that was a question too. I wanted to know um, the blood that ran down Zorg's face when the shadow called. I was like, where is he hurt? I could understand if it was coming out of his nose, like it was messing with his mind and it would come out of his eyes or nose or something, but it comes from the top of his forehead and just runs down and I didn't know well, and, and yeah, where and, he was hurt. And by that point, we've seen that same effect done to General Stedert at the beginning of the movie. And so we're led to believe there's some sort of a psychic connection from this ultimate evil, but how is he doing it to Zorg and why then, why is it making him bleed, but there's no wound? Yeah, exactly. He's not mm-hmm. hurt anywhere. So yeah, it's it, again, stylistic choice. It's just something that looks cool because it does. 
but it looks it, it worked better with Stedert at the beginning of the movie because he was wearing a hat. So you couldn't see above the brim of the hat and the blood was running down from that on top of the fact that then he's not in the movie the rest of the time. So right. we don't have to question anything. But with uh, with that happening to Zorg and he's wearing that clear plastic thing on his head. There was a lot of clear plastic I noticed in this movie. In uh, one of At one point, one, uh, one of the Mangalores, when they're shape-shifted, is wearing a clear plastic skirt. So it was it was interesting costuming to say the least. But how about definitely? Uh, and um, oh, go ahead. I was gonna say John Neville. Um, I looked it up. Uh, I know him as uh, Mr. Lawrence. He's the neighbor in Little Women. Mm-hmm. Yes, he's the grumpy old guy across the road. And I was like, oh yeah, that's what I know him from. It's oh, a, he's it's an obscure little thing, but I've seen it a thousand times. He's fantastic. I mean, he was in Adventures of Baron Munchausen. Um. He he showed up in the X Files movie uh, as one of the greater names ever, the well manicured man. I, I I've always liked John Neville. Uh, he was great. Sadly, passed away in 2011 at age 86. So he had he had a good long life though. Um, and Diva, when I was looking up, um, the girl who played Diva was actually Luke Besson's wife. Yes, at the time. And uh, she was 20. Yeah, she was young. Um, and she did not sing the song though. Uh, she lip synced it and the song was sung by a soprano. I can't remember her name. Interesting thing was that they, the song, the way that everything went, they had to record it and stitch it together digitally. There was no way for the human voice to be able to make those, those shifts in notes. But that scene is uh, a ton of fun because that song is awesome. Yeah, and I it's, wasn't expecting it to um, take on that rock. Yeah, the kind of poppy techno thing. Yeah, yeah, to blend, and then like she was getting into it, and you know the fifth L, you know Lilu was fighting and everything. And um, one thing I did think about when uh, she was watching the screen was in uh, Wally when he's asking the computer all oh, yeah. these things like that's that's that was kind of what she was doing too and how it was flashing on the screen it it reminded me of that a little bit yeah and that that scene with the diva i think is emblematic of the whole movie right because it's got this mixture of kind of traditional opera and then it suddenly flips and it gives you something different so it's it's not uh it's not stylized like anything we're used to uh in in even science fiction. So I, I enjoyed that quite a bit. Um, yeah, I just love this movie. I, I, I've i seen it several times now. I saw it. They re-released it in theaters a couple years ago um, for like a one weekend only thing or something. I went and saw it in the theater. Um, I just really, really enjoyed this movie. And I'm yeah, glad that yeah you got I had a, a lot of fun. Yeah, I'm glad that you got a chance to see it. So you had said that your husband had seen it, but you hadn't. And so you specifically told him not to tell you anything uh, prior to watching it? Correct. Yep. The only thing I knew about this movie, I would seen Lilu when she comes out of the uh, steam vent and she's looking down like she's wearing the the bandages. Oh, yeah. And she's looking down and she falls down into the cab with Bruce Willis. That is the only thing I knew about this movie. <laughs> I, I didn't know what the fifth element was or anything about the story. 
all I knew is her orange hair, the white bandages, and Bruce Willis drove a cab. That's all I knew. Nice. Oh, I was going to mention, and I forgot to mention this earlier. So Bruce Willis' character driving a cab, that is a Luc Besson thing. There's usually like cab drivers somewhere in his movies, uh, especially stuff that he writes. Um if you remember in the transporter, he's basically a cab driver, right? He's a he's a driver for hire. That mm-hmm. from from trivia that I've read, that is something where um, he is doing that to honor his dad because growing up, his father had a second job as a cab driver to help put him through art school. So oh, I thought wow. that was always okay. a cool thing um, to to do. So I wanted to mention that. Um, and one other actor I forgot, the mugger in the hallway which is one of the funniest scenes just because that dude is yeah. crazy. Um, Does he do that every day? He had to, I wonder. That was my other question. <laughs> because he had all those guns, like, they go through this every day. Like, yeah, okay, I, you got me today, okay. You have to wonder if, if that's something that happens to him a lot. But what I loved about that was, that was that's the moment where you can tell Bruce Willis is having some fun because he's like, he has the joke about the hat and he's just, he's so... The, the character of Corbin Dallas is so used to this happening to him by now. And then on the top of that, you have to think about the mugger. How long was he standing there wearing a, wearing a photo of the hallway bent down to cover the camera? Like it's just, it's so dumb and it's so great. Um, that actor, by the way, Matthew Kasovitz, um, I did not know this until just last year. Uh, but he is also in, he is the, the main love interest in the movie Amelie, uh, which came out a few years later. And I finally seen that movie and it's great. And he, he's fantastic in it, but this was the only thing I had seen him in before watching Amelie. Um, so all I write, I, the entire time I was watching Amelie, I kept trying to think of why that face looked so familiar. And it was because it was the, the mugger from the hallway scene in this and that silly, silly laugh he has, which sounds a little something like, and I love it. I love it so much. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, he cracked me up. It just, but it just seemed like a thing they did every day. Yeah. Because he had all those things and it's like, how long were you standing there this time? And <laughs> like, it, it was just a game they play every day. I, you know what? Honestly, that's what I want it to be. I want it to be just the daily, like, all right, all right, deal with this guy again. Let me take this. You don't need it anymore. So, yeah, that that was great. Yeah. I'm so glad you got and, to watch this movie. I really, really am. Yeah, it was so much fun. And um, <laughs> I appreciated, I, I wanted to know what was up with the bad Princess Leia buns on the chick that <laughs> the general brings. Yes. Uh, what is her name? Um, oh, man. Major Iceborg. Yes. Yeah. I don't know what I don't know what that was all about. That was that was something else. Just the the costuming and the the choices for the way things looked. I mean, you got Ruby Rod's hair is all over the place. Um, it, it, interestingly enough, with all the randomness of the costumes and how crazy all of it was, and then Zorg is wearing the same thing throughout the entire movie. But even his costume just looks looks so cool, uh, and lots of big collars. I noticed. Mm-hmm. Lots of very large it's- collars, like extending up behind people's heads a lot. It seems to be like any time there's like a future, like, oh, we're in the far future with flying things. There's always big collars. Like, I don't. 
and maybe whiplash is a big aesthetic. issue. I don't know. Gotta, <laughs> maybe got to keep people from snapping their neck when they take off. Who knows? Yeah, I did. Um, I did make a note when uh, Zor came to talk to uh, the goofy looking alien guys. It right. It was a twofold for me. It reminded me of Loveless talking from the Wild Wild West, like when he's doing his whole presentation. Mm-hmm. And it also reminded me of Iron Man Two when Hammer's on stage talking yes. about all the amazing things this does. Yeah, I, I have a feeling that um Sam Rockwell and uh John Favreau probably took a little inspiration from that scene um when they were making Iron Man Two because yeah it does have that feel to it. Um and and that whole that whole scene is great because it, it gives you from the beginning of that scene when he's walking down the hallway and the guy comes up to him talking about firing five hundred thousand people until the end of it where he's walking away from everything blowing up with with a cigarette in his mouth. You now know everything you need to know about Zorg to enjoy this movie. Yep. And I I really like that. So uh, it's really, really good. Oh, uh, the other thing I wanted to mention was the cigarettes in this movie were kooky looking, right? Because they had like, it was it was like 80% filter, if you pay attention to the way they look. Uh, it, and and I don't know why that always stood out to me. It's like, okay, is, is tobacco like that much more potent in the future? I don't know. I or, just thought it was backwards. I was like, why are they smoking? Like, Bruce Willis, you could have flipped that over. The filter goes in your mouth like i yeah i was very confused but yeah that's that was all filter so that was an interesting another interesting aesthetic choice i I, there's a lot of those um oh and another thing i read was that the license plates on a lot of the vehicles in that flying car sequence you can't read them but apparently they all had new york the fu state which i thought if that's true was pretty (laughs) funny i did like um luke perry when in the beginning when uh, they're like, Aziz, light, and he's marking off number 11. Like, <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> like uh, again. There's so many yep. good little moments like that. The, the Thai restaurant is on, a, on an old <gasps> ship. Oh, like, my God. That was fabulous. I was like, oh, my God. That's so cool. And that guy. I want a Thai place that will fly to my window. <laughs> yes. Oh, totally. Uh, and, and that guy, Kim Chan, um, I think it was like the next year or the year after he was um, Uncle Benny in Lethal Weapon 4. And I I remember him from that. Like, I've seen him in a few different things, but this is the movie that I always remember because he's like, you know, Grandfather Say and, and him betting his lunch. And then, <laughs> congratulations, you're fired. Oh, oh, well, here. So, I yeah, I love that. I love, like, the aesthetic of that broken down janky looking boat but it's got a full thai restaurant on it and he just floats from window to window so well, wasn't the mcdonald's floating that the police were ordering from too <laughs> yes it was and i love the fact that they have this giant mcdonald's with now it says on their trillions served um because all the mcdonald's back in the 90s would say you know billions served uh-huh. and uh they they end up wrecking their police car into another mcdonald's truck later but here's the best part about that. The the cop that's driving, the one that's all like, oh, I'm too old for this, blah, blah, blah. You know what his you know what that actor's name is? No. Ma- Mac McDonald. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, that's so great. Uh this movie's just a ton of fun. If you haven't seen it before, what the hell are you doing? Go watch the movie. It's it's really, really fun. 
And that's the best thing it I is, can say about it. It's just fun. And and just go in, you know, like it's a popcorn movie. I'm going to have a good time. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, I do wish I would have watched it back then because I, I, I do enjoy it. I watch it, but I don't know what like the deep love for it is, I guess. You know, but yeah, you don't but I have appreciated at fun. Oh, sure. You don't have the 20 years of nostalgia or having seen it at like 16 or something like that, where, where it made an impression on you. It's you're seeing it after the fact, but it's still it's enjoyable. Um, that's for me. That's the big thing is I think I didn't see this in theaters in 97. I want to say I saw it in like 98, 99 um, when it came out on home video. So it was within a couple of years and I loved it right away because it was just it didn't look or sound like anything that I was seeing at the time in science fiction um, on screen. This was influenced a lot by some comic books and um, some comic book artists were part of the production of it, but it just didn't look and sound and feel like anything that I'd seen before. So I really, I latched onto that and I really enjoyed it. Um, and again, with the, the right mix of, they used digital effects sparingly and to extend things they relied more on their practical effects which i think helped it age better uh this was not a cheap movie to make by the way this had a budget an estimated budget in 1997 of 93 million dollars so i believe it it was not cheap but uh it made its money back it was a big enough hit um and basan never really he talked about doing a sequel but just never did one and in in a lot of ways for as much as I want to know more about the characters and know more about kind of what happened around the events of this movie, I also don't want a sequel, especially now. Like if they had done one right away or fairly soon after, even with different characters, but kind of in the same world, I think that could have been okay. But enough time has passed now. Just let this be like a, its own self-contained thing and, and don't take anything away from it. Yeah, I think... Um... I like that too, and I think that's what works for the movies that we have these questions. Like we, they call the that planet the ultimate evil, and mm-hmm. yeah, he made that created some wounds with some blood or something. But that's what makes it evil. Is my version of evil and your version of evil is going to be completely different? Yeah. So if they if they build upon that, it's going to ruin whatever I have built up in my head. You know, yeah. like exactly. Yep. We're coming up with our own stories, and that's part of the fun is the mystery. And once you know, it's like, oh, okay, that's no big deal. Why? Okay, whatever. And yeah, I, <laughs> I, I want, I want to know some of these things, but I also don't want to know, and I want to make them up myself. I don't. Exactly. I want to. I want to know how Zorg found out about all this stuff, but I'd rather come up with the story myself of like based on what I know of the character from this movie. Okay, how did he find out about it? Because obviously he did, and he went to Cornelius for it. And, and and Cornelius, being the forgetful guy that he is and not remembering names, just dismissed it because he's so laser-focused on, on taking care of things that he was told he had to. So, yeah, there's all sorts of fun stuff like that. It's just, it's a good movie. I'm really, really glad that you got a chance to watch it and that you enjoyed it. That's always a big thing for me, too, is, you know, when it's something like this where I have liked the movie for 20-something years... There's always the concern that uh, I'm going to show it to somebody and they're just not going to like it. And then they'll and it, and and that's fine. Like, you don't have to like the movies that I do. But then I feel bad because I feel like, well, I've given you something that that I really, really enjoy. And you're just like, I don't get it. 
but you get you get what is enjoyable about this, which is a ton of fun. So I'm glad that you got to enjoy it, and now you and your husband can watch it. Yeah, definitely. And um, I probably wouldn't have enjoyed it when I was younger, like when my dad was. I wasn't big into science fiction. I mm. mean, I'd, I'd seen Star Wars and that, but I like it now where I can put those references of like Wildwood West or Iron Man Two, and I've seen Airplane now, and I have more built upon it for the 20 years I've been with my husband. So I was able to appreciate it a lot more than I would have if I actually sat, saw it way back when. So well, good. thank you. Thank you for bringing it to me. I, I loved every minute. I want to watch it again and see what I missed. <laughs> Absolutely. It's totally worth it. And just remember, and uh, the movie said this a couple times and it's, it's very true. Time not important, only life important. Only life important. Don't forget that. Plus, this has two of my favorite movie fake laughs ever. The one I already played, which is... <laughs> and then Lilu's laugh is even more annoying. So I'm going to make you listen to that now. <laughs> that makes me want to stick pencils in my ears. So, it, you know. Yeah, and I just think it's funny. Like, I don't... That was one thing I did have to park. I think Ruby Rod wouldn't have been part of any of this. Like... He he. Oh no! He mans no. up at the end and is helping, and I realize that he's there to keep the president advised of kind of what's going on. Yeah, well, he's but but honestly, he doesn't even know that he's part of that. He's just there to do his show. Right, but I mean that's why he's part of the. That's why he, he's following Bruce Willis is mm-hmm. to. You know, that's just his part in all of it. In yeah. Story wise, but I think the actual character, though, he wouldn't have had nothing to do with none of that. To oh, hell no. with the show, to hell with any of this. <laughs> <laughs> well, and that's the thing is, I think I look at it as he was going to stick with Bruce Willis the whole time because of his show, and he was gonna. Mm-hmm. He he felt he felt that as soon as things started going crazy, he saw that Corbin was holding it together, and he needed to do his show no matter what. Like, that's just, that's the only thing he knows. So, either way, like, it's just, uh, this is a silly movie with a lot of crazy looking stuff. If you like outlandish costumes, too, watch this movie. Just watch it and take that in, because holy cow, are there some crazy costumes. Totally worth seeing. Um, Well, thank you, Kit. This was fun. I'm glad that you came on. Um, Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yes. Uh, so this will be out, uh, I record on Sunday nights, 8 p.m. Eastern time, twitch.tv slash TV's Travis. So if you want to come hang out and be like uh, Nisbet and Artemis, and uh, and I think I saw Dusty White in there uh, in the chat hanging out, um, please do so. I love to have people in my chat room. It's always great. Uh, the show comes out in podcast form on Wednesdays at tvstravis.com. That's the, that's the easiest way to find it. Let's go there and you can find the subscribe button. And then subscribe in whatever podcatcher you like to use. Uh, coming up, I have some fun stuff. So, unfortunately, I had to kick, um, not kick, but I had to uh, rearrange scheduling f- with Paige from the Reverie True Crime podcast. Uh, so, we're going to still do frailty. I just don't know when yet. But, coming up for the month of April, the next four weeks, uh, the show is going to have, um, I'm going to have my guests are from the So Wizard podcast, uh, one a week. And we're going to be watching starting next week with Joey. And he's never seen Jaws before. So 
I'm getting him to sit down and watch Jaws, and we'll see what he thinks of that one. I can't You're wait. You're going to need a bigger boat. Uh, yeah, we are. And I can't wait because I love Jaws. So uh, this will be a ton of fun. So that's coming up next week. Uh, Joey from the So Wizard Podcast, and we are going to do Jaws. Also, um, last week, Nisbet and I talked about Dunkirk. And there's another show out there, the movie uh, show with Phil Rudd and his son Austin. And they did Dunkirk this same week. And so if you get a chance um, to check out their show, I will try to find a link and put it up on Twitter. Uh, my Twitter is at TV's Travis, um, and I'll link to Phil's show. Uh, Phil and Austin are great. Phil's been on here. He was on uh, a, a little while back. And uh, they do a great show on movies as well. And they just happened to um, watch Dunkirk the same week that, uh, that I did with Nisbet. So uh, definitely worth checking out. Uh, but yeah, Joey from So Wizard next week doing Jaws. I can't wait um, because, uh, boy, um, don't go in the water. Uh, this was a movie that scared a lot of people at the time. And I'm curious to see what he thinks as far as how it held up because I think it still held up. So until then, remember to enjoy your movies. And, uh, you know, the world, it it's crazy, but we're getting better. Uh, but still, we should all be excellent to each other. Right? So this has been Wait You Haven't Seen. Thank you, Aziz. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>